Good morning. The beginning of a two-part series, so took what I tried to do in one sermon usually, and we split it in two, and then I cut it all in half, so we might only be 10 minutes late today, we'll see. And the name of this two-part series is A Tale of Two Kingdoms. In the modern world, we found ways to neatly compartmentalize our lives. We have compartments for religion, for civic life, for politics, for economics. We listen to the news and choose one of the two options that the anchor offers to us. We go on living our lives day after day in the same ways as everyone else, but maybe with a heightened moral vigor. After all, we are Christians. We aspire, though, to much of the same things. And we often pursue those same things in much of the same ways. And sometimes we look more like Americans than any other designation someone might offer. We pursue life, a life uniquely afforded to those as privileged as us. We pursue liberty, a freedom unique to the history of the world, free from many of the limitations that may stifle the rest of the world from being and doing whatever one wants. But we pursue, above all things, happiness. The state of being where we are completely satisfied with all that this world has to offer. And I feel you right now. (laughs) Because I feel like that's heavy. And it's weighty. And it's hard things to look at. Hard things to consider seriously. Because the scriptures call us to a life that's uncompartmentalized. And in the comfort of compartmentalization, we've missed a lot of what the scriptures have to offer that confront us in our ways If the Lord might deem to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we might come to see the vibrant spirituality that he offers that's never indifferent to economics or politics or civic life. In fact, the two sides of the aisle, the two options that you're given on your favorite news channel, In looking closer, we might come to see that there are two sides of the same worldly coin. That they serve and represent one world kingdom. After all, whose inscription do you find when you pull out those coins? If we dare, 
we may come to find that the bliss of ignorance and the right of privilege afforded here in this current world empire is untenable as a member of God's kingdom. This morning we're going to explore a tale of two kingdoms. And we're going to look at the two actual sides that Scripture offer us. The kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And I want you to know, and it's a common practice for me, I've suffered greatly and I've been faced with much disappointment and self-loathing in order to look seriously at these things, not only the past 20 years, but especially in the past 18 months. So I didn't try to devise a message that would be hard. It's the one I've been faced with. And what it's done for me, and what I hope it does for you, is cause you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That it would cause you at once to crawl back to the cross where you find that Jesus still remains and all the more your only hope for life and for salvation. For there is no other. Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. It rarely escapes my, my uh, notice that he doesn't say affirm, encourage, and validate in all of your ways. Though, if you feel that way, I all the more I often want to hear that. But he draws on the opposite perspective perspective of that spectrum because God's word typically confronts us when I read God's scriptures it reproves me it rebukes me and it exhorts me to a way I usually am not always already going so if God should choose to do that today I pray that we would not turn our ears away from truth and return again to myths but that we would repent and believe for today is our day for salvation as is every day. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And thank you that you are a good, good father and that you love us so. Thank you for your patience, your kindness, kindness and your mercy that you would deem to condescend yourself to us and the grace that you give us to bear along with us and to continue along with us with your loving kindness that is forever. May we rejoice all the more as we see the beauty of who you are and what you offer. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as you probably already have guessed, we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation. And often it's better to start at the end so that we can have a better idea of what the beginning meant and where it's heading. So, in order to catch a first glimpse of where this story begins, this story, this tale of two kingdoms, 
we should start in Revelation 19, 11, 19. And I'm going to be jumping all over, so if you just want to listen, it's fine. And I'm going to be pulling out some parts. By all means, be a Berean who goes and studies to see if the things that I say are true. Revelation 19, 11, and 19 says this. John, the revelator, says, And I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. This is a picture of Jesus who has come back to set things to rights in this fallen world. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, the beast and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who is Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army. So here we see the kingdoms and peoples of the world will in the final day be completely united in challenging God. But it's not the first time. No, if we jump back in time to Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, we'll get to see the first moment in which humanity was entirely at one, united in challenging God. The scriptures read this way. Now the whole earth used to be used used the same language and the same words. They joined together on a plain in the land of Shinar. They said to one another, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They made bricks for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Well, those of Babel sought a uniformity, a uniformity by the place that we decide to inhabit together, a uniformity of the language that they have, and they worked together to establish an empire. And they did this for a very specific reason, in order that they could overstep the limitations and boundaries set upon finite creatures. Through education, through technology, they came to understand that if you burn bricks thoroughly, that they would gain strength. And if they used tar for mortar, they could build bigger walls, a greater fortress of protection, and industry could flourish. In fact, if they worked together, they could elevate themselves to the point when God was superfluous, when God was as good as dead. You see, building a tower to heaven expresses aspiration for God-like power and status. They wanted to be like the sovereign. They wanted to rule over themselves as they saw fit. My will be done for my good and no one else's. They wanted to make a name for themselves, that they would rise up and make themselves great so that all the world could see their glory 
and honor. And throughout history, I hope this story sounds familiar to you. If it doesn't, gain self-awareness. Throughout history, man seeks to elevate himself to the place of God. And yet, in this story, what you come to find is that as he does, God condescends to come down to him in mercy to judge such pride and hubris that man might come to terms once again with how finite he actually is. That's the loving kindness of God that is forever. That's his patient endurance with us who are inclined towards high treason regularly. His judgment here is the confusion of language. It is the confusion in order that they could not have the unity of culture and empire that would allow them to start to overstep the boundaries of their finite creatureliness. And he scattered the people, which, by the way, fulfilled his mandate back in Genesis 1. To increase, to multiply, and fill all the earth. You see, this already was an act of high treason. And we see in 11.6 that... uh, God laments when he says, now nothing they purpose to do will be impossible for them in the synergy of their communities. And it actually seems that that's not a good thing. We kind of need to come to terms with that. Me having no limitations in all possibilities, God does not see as a good thing. So God's confusing the languages enforces some limits of humanity that makes for their good. And now humans must seek the unity and diversity that's appropriate to finite creatures rather than reaching for the uniformity of empire that would give to them a status and a power appropriate only to God. To become self-sufficient. Here's some great values. To become independent, to become sovereign, the masters of our own destinies, yes? Free to be and do as we please. My will be done. Now symbolically at Pentecost, the nations that were scattered at Babel are gathered again. And you get to see the kingdom of God and how it works. You see that before the peoples came together in order to elevate themselves to the place of God. And here God comes down and brings the people together. But he doesn't bring them together by their aspiration for divinity. They actually come together in order to worship the only God of all the world, and that's why he brings them there, that he might reveal himself to them and that they would worship as he created them to. And a new form of international community was formed. In this community, their sufficiency is not found in self. Their sufficiency is found in God alone, that which is befitting a creature. They are no longer seeking to be... independent, but instead become interdependent, and all of their possessions they come to have in common with one another, 
selling their possessions and sharing them with all who may have need. And they were submitting to the sovereignty of the Lord, the scriptures say, as they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Prayer, by the way, the ultimate show of absolute need. And they became free to give up all that they wanted to be and do for the sake of others. Free from the bondage of sin and selfishness that had so enslaved them before. This was the kingdom of God as it comes down to the lowly, to the needy, to the finite creature who is utterly dependent on that God and his kingdom. These scriptures tell a tale of two kingdoms. The kingdoms of this world aspire to make a name for themselves by building themselves up to a freedom, sovereignty, and godlike power and status that is appropriate to God alone. Seeking to live outside the created limits of humanity that makes for humanity's good in order to be like God's. The kingdom of God, where God comes down and exalts his name above all creation, frees us from the bondage of selfishness, whose power is the fear of death, imposes his sovereign will that is good, acceptable, and perfect for everyone and all creation, and rules the world with all glory, honor, and power being ascribed to his name alone. Now, the message here is going to be a big one, so you've got to expand your view to much larger categories. Here is the gospel. By the way, each of these kingdoms offers a gospel, a good news, where salvation is graciously offered, and that salvation is always a promise of peace or wholeness or completeness, that which every kingdom offers. But it offers for those who believe or follow its ways. Are you, you got, we're compartmentalized, so you got to take the terms I just used that we want to use as some compartmentalized thing for salvation, like some neat little formula where I get to be saved and we're all good and I keep living the promises of this world and following its ways, and look larger. Every kingdom offers a gospel and a salvation for all who would follow its ways. And all of them promise life, wholeness, completeness. And for those who do not follow its ways, every one of them hold out for it, death. Every kingdom. And so I pose these questions for the next two weeks. Which kingdom are you serving? What do you call salvation? And what gospel or good news are you believing or following for that salvation? If you think these are obvious questions and you have a simplistic theoretical answer, I'm telling you right now, you do not know as you ought. But if these are the questions that in the dark of night as you lay on your bed, 
you struggle with, that you are challenged with, then blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who don't have it in and of themselves. Well, the first empire we're going to look at is Babylon. And Daniel 4 is the text that we're going to use. Nebuchadnezzar, I call him Chad for short. He was the world ruler of Babylon. I had to throw it in. I couldn't resist. I, I, I debated it. And Nebuchadnezzar is a paradigm for rulers and nations who aspire to godlike global empire. And because we are a godlike global empire that are ruled by the people, what God has to say to Nebuchadnezzar likely has a lot to do with any one of us. You see, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar convinced the people of the empire that their lives, their salvation, was to be gained under the rule of this empire and Nebuchadnezzar. And if people would do as Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar said, they would live abundantly. And if they do not, they will perish with all the rest. For life exists in the empire, and there is none that exists outside of it. So, so long as the militaristic and economic program of this empire is intact, and the people will obey its way, its path for salvation, so life to all who participate. We must keep the program of the empire if we wish to live and live abundantly. Notice in chapter 4, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar speaks of himself. Nebuchadnezzar, Chad, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. Does that strike you as a familiar construction? It's one God continually speaks of himself as the ruler of throughout all of Scripture. Here Nebuchadnezzar sees him as that. In fact, Daniel speaks of four empires, uh, from Babylon all the way to Rome, all of which claim sovereignty over all the world, though all and each one of them also come far short of such sovereignty. These empires and their people believe that they're self-sufficient, that they're all-powerful, and that no one could challenge their might, and that they are even the sovereign providers of all the world. I'm going to allow you to be connected with an ancient Near Eastern concept called a mythic world tree. And it comes up in the Gospels as well, which we're going to end up seeing, which is fascinating. In Nebuchadnezzar's vision, this world tree is the key. In 4, verses 10 through 12, you're here, you read these scriptures. Now, these were the visions in my mind, says Nebuchadnezzar, as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached up into the heavens. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. 
The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. That's the mythical world tree of the ancient Near East. It was a symbol of global power. Ezekiel 31 also describes Assyria in the exact same terms, which was Babylon's predecessor, as this same world tree, Assyria's thought about themselves. This tree also plays off of, earlier you see Nebuchadnezzar's depiction of himself as flourishing, Ra'anan, which is a, a term that refers to the flourishing of a tree, and it's used metaphorically of a human or a ruler who prospers greatly. We are a people who are Ra'anan here in this current empire. And it's interesting, you hear a lot of, and, and there are some places where Ra'anan is a good thing, such as in Psalm 92, but here it's not. It symbolizes the arrogance of the powerful who see their legacy as reaching up into the heavens where God becomes superfluous and they rule as the sovereigns over all of their life. You might hear Babylon that in its tower reaching up to heaven, which, by the way, this empire also, because it encompasses all nations, resurrects the project of the builders of the Tower of Babel to bring all the people together as one. In uniformity, we might come to take rule over ourselves and all this world. But we also come to see the underbelly of that here. Because the pillars of human sovereign power always and in every place are built through the oppression of the weak. Let me put this in other terms. The only way you become like a God is on the backs of and through the oppression of other, other human beings. Nebuchadnezzar thinks and behaves as if he's the highest power and his kingdom the sovereign provider of all the nations. And the narrative takes for granted that this disposition reveals an assumed power that is high-handed and self-serving. Notice in 427, Daniel's exhortation. After he makes the interpretation of the dream, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, that Babylon will be felled like a tree and insists that Nebuchadnezzar recognize it is heaven that rules and not him. And then in 427, he says this, and the underbelly is revealed. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Throughout scriptures, justice and protection for the weakest in society is the primary purpose and justification for power of any kind. Whether it be militaristic, whether it be economic, whether it be political, it is given for the sake of the weak, of the vulnerable, of the poor of society. Selfishness, in every case, is an abuse of power. And every abuse of power has a whiff of self-deification. Do you have selfishness in your life? 
you just go ahead and put an equal sign there, wants to be like God. Same thing. And any power not wielded for the weak is an abuse of that power. It's an elevation of God-like status where, listen, listen, guys, you guys, listen. You can be free to do and be all that you want to be. Just go live for yourself. Make all your dreams come true at any cost. Sound like a familiar gospel? You sold that gospel every day? Adults, so are you. Ours become more neatly veiled. We don't say them quite as unabashedly as the young might. Well, Babylon was much like Babel. It aspired to a freedom, a sovereignty, and a godlike power and status reserved only for God. Sought to live outside of created limits, whether it be God's rule, whether it be his intentions for us to be lovers of all this world, caretakers of all this world. So God mercifully condescended to discipline them through judgment. And he makes Nebuchadnezzar like an ox. He didn't make him like a lion. He didn't make him like any kind of powerful animal. He made him like an ox, and that's not actually an insult. He made him like an ox for a very simple reason, that an ox would be a better ruler than you because the ox knows who his master is, and you think you're your own. Oh, that we had an ox to vote for in the coming elections. as political as I'll get, but I'm sincere, I assure you. You know, my dog Lola would make for a good ruler. She knows her master. And every day when I come home, she waits with joy and anticipation that she might get to be in my presence. Oh, that we could all be like Lola. She follows me around, the one who provides for all of her needs, as one who is completely dependent on her master. She seeks diligently to understand what I want from her so that she can obey and show me how compliant she can be. My people that dwell with me in my household, she goes from one to the other to make sure everybody's okay. And if one of them's not, she stays with them and tries to comfort. She'll start licking them to try to comfort them. And those big soft jaws of her are kind of comforting. Oh, that we could look at Lola and take lessons from one who knows who their master is and never seeks to be their own. Well, the unfortunate thing is that the gospel, the good news of this Babylonian kingdom, this empire that spread over all the earth, afforded them, the people who participated in this gospel, 
a life suitable to God's. They had great excess. It gave them a liberty that bordered on sovereignty. They kind of, so long as they were in the empire and did what it, what it said, they, they were kind of free to do whatever they wanted and just enjoyed life as they envisioned it. And they were afforded the selfish pursuit of happiness. It didn't matter that it was at the cost and neglect of the exploited, the poor, and the weak. They didn't have to see that. That was at the peripheries of the empire. We just got to see all of the pomp and circumstance of the empire that we got to live amidst. And presumably this was for all the good of the world. I'm not going to draw the conclusions. You'll need to draw your own. But you know there's two types of global empire, and these become very important by next week, just so you know, when we start looking at Revelation. If you don't understand these two, I promise you, you don't understand Babylon when it comes to Revelation. There's two types of global empires. There's the great superpowers of the ancient Near East, of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, which all function as biblical paradigms of militaristic might taking political form in order to exercise dominance over all the known world. But there's another sort. It's a purely economic empire that stands out as a paradigm in the world empires. You've probably not read much about it. Have you ever heard of Tyre? Don't talk about Tyre a whole lot. Well, the economic dominance of Tyre is denounced through three chapters in Ezekiel 26 through 28. God apparently wanted to take a little time with them. 26.2, listen to Tyre and the way, uh, what she has done. Son of man, because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gateway of the peoples is broken. It has opened to me. I shall now be filled now that she is laid waste. So here's, here, here it is, ready? Israel is strategically placed as a trade route for all the known world. And Israel is given that land by God and blessed greatly by God for one reason and one reason only. And what was the intention of God for bestowing such blessing, blessing upon her? That she would be a blessing for all the nations of the world. And what did Israel do? Blessings for me and mine and no one else. And she was not faithful to God and his purposes. She wanted to be her own God. And so God condescended to her in judgment that she might be reminded who she really is. Well, Tyre, the opportunist that, that she was, said, aha, that land is available. And it's funny because Israel is just like the nations of the world. Listen what she says. The gateway of the peoples is broken. See, Tyre's an opportunist. It is open to me. I shall now be filled. Do you hear the self-interest that's lining every bit of it? I don't want to get too political, but I could say these are the same values of a free market capitalism. All this for me 
and for mine and no one else. And it reveals their mindset, the same mindset as Babel and Babylon, more for me so that I can be like God. It doesn't matter if those blessings are gained on the misfortune of others. What matters is that they're now mine to be had. After all, that's just good business. Stinks to be them, good for us. We move on. Well, let's hear more about Tyre in chapter 27. It says, and I'm going to read several tidbits that give you a picture of Tyre. Say to Tyre, merchant of the peoples to many coastlands, you, Tyre, have said, I am perfect in beauty. And the reason Tyre saw herself as perfect in beauty, it says later on, because Tyre had an abundance of all kinds of wealth. Because of the abundance of her goods, for many coastlands were her market. See, Tyre became a world power, an economic empire. The importer and exporter, nothing got to anybody that didn't pass through the middleman's hands. And she profited greatly. Scriptures say that she was filled and was very glorious in the heart of the seas. When her things went out from the sea, she satisfied many people. You see, this economic empire was important because she is the one that provided for all the people. Kind of sounds like a mythic world tree, doesn't it? With the abundance of your wealth and your merchandise, you enrich the kings of the earth. You see, Tyre would have seen herself as very beautiful in her great excess of goods. And you know, in her trade, she enriched many peoples, you see, that we would have more for ourselves, that we would grasp after the things that this empire offers. We will actually, have you heard this reasoning before, come to benefit all the nations of the world, you see. Self-interest actually works out for the good of all the world, if everybody would just get onto that program. In this way, Tyre enriched many peoples, but you know what? She especially enriched the powerful elites, the kings of the earth. So, you know, Babylon had a program of uh, big government, and uh, everybody in that government gets to live like kings. Sounds a little democratic. That's okay. I could make it sound Republican too. It doesn't really matter. Uh, here we got trickle-down economics. It's really good. We profit those at the top the most, and it will trickle down and bless from the scraps of the table all the lowly peoples of the world if we'll only do our part to be on top, you see. Now choose which one you want to be for, which is a funny question. Talk about a setup. They're the same. But of course, Tyre's role as the hub of economic power especially profited Tyre herself, all of her inhabitants, and everyone who lived under her empire, everyone who believed in her gospel, everyone who sought the salvation she offered, and everyone who served her kingdom. 
and with wealth grew arrogance. Her economic power wasn't for the weak and the vulnerable. As we have learned, not using one's power to enrich the weak or vulnerable is an abuse of power. And so you get the indictment in chapter 28 that says this, because your heart, and in the scriptures, heart always means mind and will, so because your mind or will is lifted up and you have said, I am God, I sit in the seat of God's, in the heart of the seas, yet you are a man and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you by your wisdom By your trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Draw your own parallels. And how the mighty fall in 28, 15 and following. Tyre, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence or selfishness. And you sinned. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of or for the sake of your own splendor. You traded your wisdom for the image that you had made of yourself. And the result is the same as the rest. But listen to this one because it's really a peculiar, ominous scripture here. Um, it says this, How you have perished, O renowned city. They did make a, great, a name that was great for themselves. She and her inhabitants, and now wait for the strange part, ready? She who imposed terror on all her inhabitants. What a turning of the tables. She offers a gospel for life, a gospel for salvation. And in the end, that gospel is the very terror she inflicted on her own people that turned out for their demise. Listen to her gospel. Tyre. The one who is said to be all beautiful, wise, powerful, the provider of wealth and goods, the commander of the world market, offered salvation in the form of an abundance of wealth and goods for all those, both inhabitants and customers, who participated with her economically. But in the end, they all perish with her as they all participate in the hubris of self-deification. Remember, self-deification equals selfishness, violence, treachery. Babel, Babylon, Tyre, every kingdom of the earth, all the same. They wanted to be like gods. They weren't willing to be like Lola or the ox, the finite creature who knows and loves and serves their good master. No, they wanted to be their own master. And God shares his glory with no one. For it is not fitting for creatures. So he condescends in judgment. Listen to the final word 
on Tyre, who, by the way, many of you probably never heard of, and for good reason. I, God, have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. So what's the point? What's the point? I'll tell you the point. We're living in the Tower of Babel. We are living under the world tree of Babylon. We are living in the belly of the merchant ships of Tyre. And chances are, if you're not aware of the gospel that she is offering us, you're probably following it. It's a very natural thing to do. We live like gods in great pomp and luxury, with great power, with great freedom. We live a life, a life suitable only to gods. We live with a liberty, an absolute liberty from all limitations that's suitable only to the sovereign God of all the universe. And we live in the pursuit, not of justice for all, especially the weak and the poor, but in pursuit of personal, self-gained happiness, the gathering of all this world has to offer us. The Gospels of the kingdom of the earth say this, Fear death, which the kingdoms of the world wield, and believe in or follow the ways of this kingdom for salvation. Trust in and support its military might. Partake in its way of consumerism and excess for the good of all the world. Promote its world dominance as the good for all the peoples and nations of the world. For the great hope of the world, everyone knows, is democracy and free market capitalism, right? If you do, you can also participate in the salvation that that empire offers. You can be like a god. Have you heard this gospel? You need only to pay attention to the news commercials or listen to whatever's peddled as wisdom out there these days to recognize it. But faithfulness at this time in our history must be speaking against and living in opposition to the great atrocities that exist in this current world empire today. And tomorrow, next Sunday, we'll explore those because I am out of time. And I do want to be faithful to that. I will say real quick, Go read about Daniel who lived in radical nonconformity to Babylon, who would not buy in to the gospel of Babylon and face certain death, and the kingdom of God came down to him and raised him up. Go read about Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, who didn't seek to rise to power and to rise up to the heavens the way that Babylon had offered but in radical nonconformity stood against it and even spoke against it and faced sure and certain death as the kingdom of God came down to them and blessed them and promoted them 
on God's terms, not on the terms of the kingdom of this world. In the end, we see Jesus. And in Mark 4, 31, 32, go read about it. You'll hear about another world tree, an unlikely world tree that starts off as the humblest of seeds, that of a mustard seed. But as it grows, guess what? Its branches come to grow larger than any other tree of the garden. And the birds rest in it and gain shade from it. There is another world tree that comes. That world tree is the kingdom of God, and it doesn't come the way the other kingdoms come. Its dominance comes through servitude. It doesn't identify itself with the elite and the powerful of the world. Instead, it identifies itself with the most lowly, with the poorest, with the weakest, with the criminals, with the most despised, and it goes to death willingly, trusting the God who is over that kingdom, over every other. And as the kingdom goes, so go its people. Which kingdom are you serving? Which leader are you following? What salvation are you laying hold of? Wrestle with that question. It's not an easy one, and it doesn't have a trite answer. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your graciousness, your kindness, your forbearance, your patience. You are a good, good father. Help us to become children who respond rightly to you, your sovereignty, your power, your ways. Let us be those who are faithful to you and wait for your kingdom to come down to us, whereby we will have life, where we will have a liberty, and we will have justice that is suitable for us as creatures before you, our great God and King. To you may all glory, honor, and power be ascribed forever. Amen.